Father, tonight as we look at some scriptures, especially during this Christmas season, we're reminded of the truth of these things and the practices of the way we celebrate it come into our view and we discuss them and we apply them. Lord, I pray that you'd give us all balance and conviction of heart that pleasing you would be our number one priority. That everything else would take back seat to letting you be in charge, letting you drive our lives. I pray, Father, that during this busy, busy season, that the opportunities set before us to share Jesus Christ with the world, that we would seize them and use them for your glory. What exciting possibilities await us during this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight I'm calling my message, Can Christmas Lead You to Christ? It might sound like a contradictory kind of a title, the obvious answer being yes, but I mean, can Christmas, the way we know it and the way we celebrate it in this country, lead a person to Christ? You know, it's funny how quick Christmas comes, right? It's like food in a microwave oven. It comes, it's ready before you want it to be. It's just there. And how often we say right after Thanksgiving, can you believe it? Christmas is almost here. But it's a great time of the year. For most people, we cherish the time of Christmas. And the story of the birth of Jesus Christ and all of these events that we read about always warm the heart of every true child of God. We never get tired of singing the songs. They take on a new meaning to us because we're believers. So in the Gospel of Luke, we begin by reading what took place at the real Christmas, the first Christmas, when our Savior was born. The first 20 verses really record it, and from there we'll look at some other scriptures and some historical, traditional things as well. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be registered. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, or swaddling cloths, actually, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. 
So it was when the angel had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. I love Christmas. I've got to tell you right off the bat. I love this time of year. I love to celebrate it. And I grew up like, no doubt, most of you with fond memories, family things, traditional things that we did. I look forward to getting the tree. Except in our house we had a white plastic tree that you'd, you know, put together, follow the numbers and you get it up. And, you know, it, it looked okay, but as a kid, I, Dad, let's dump that tree and get a real tree this Christmas. And we had certain decorations and certain lights. And I loved The time of the year. I loved doing that as a kid. It brought back special memories. Now later on in life, when I came to know Jesus Christ in a personal way, and I was born again in 1973, and I started growing in the Lord, Christmas was enjoyable, and yet, as wonderful as Christmas was, it was very confusing to me because I was struggling with certain traditions that I had kept. I came into contact with certain Christians who, you know, would sort of do this whenever you'd have a Christmas tree or you'd mention any Christmas tradition. That's not right. Don't you know Jesus wasn't born on December 25th? And I heard these stories and I felt the sentiments of some of them and so I walked away wanting to celebrate it but at the same time very confused. The conflict was with certain traditions that I kept and that you kept. Do you remember Fiddler on the Roof? What's the opening song that Tavia sang? Tradition. 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 (laughs) And he was basically singing the song that was for so many years part of the glue of Judaism, the traditions of the Jewish people through the diaspora, that is the dispersion into many nations, that kept them together. Kept them as a community. Traditions that were passed down through the scribes and the teachers of the law throughout generations. Stories from the Bible. Traditions kept to celebrate feasts. Now traditions can become bad. They they can be very negative in some cases. And some of you may have bad vibes from your past traditions. Tradition is not a good word for some of you. You've tried to shake and to shed some of those traditions. And it's true. Tradition, in some cases, can substitute for the truth of obedience to Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke to the scribes and the Pharisees and said, You make the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. And Paul took that thought, and in Colossians 2.8, speaking to the Gnostic heretics and the Judaizers that were in the church, He said, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men 
and after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Now, that's a negative side of traditions, but they can have also a very positive effect. They can have a good effect. In fact, the Bible commands us to keep certain traditions passed down. Would you turn with me to 2 Thessalonians for just a moment, chapter 3. Paul writes to this very young church that has grown in the, about a space of a year. They face many problems, and some of them were departing to other things. And in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, he picks up in his letter by telling this young church, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Look down in the next chapter, just a few verses down. In verse 6, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, and not according to the tradition which he has received from us. Now, the word tradition is a Greek word here, paradosis or parodosis. It's a combination of two words, and it literally means to deliver something into somebody else's hands. To take something and give it to another person. Hence, it means to hand something down from generation to generation, generally oral precepts, verbal commands from one generation to the next, either by word or by our epistle. Now, tonight, we want to look at some history. We want to look at some of the traditions that surround, in some cases, entrap Christmas. Some of it you've heard, some of it you haven't, and some of it will absolutely surprise you. And hopefully it will set you free and you'll see it as an opportunity. You know, every year, there's always somebody who gets bent out of shape about Christmas. I think they're very legalistic, personally. Just because I, I guess I like Christmas and I've studied a little bit on it and what I've studied has been fascinating to me. Of course, the Jehovah Witnesses always get bent out of shape about Christmas. They don't bother me. I expect as much. But when believers in the body of Christ do it, I simply try to say, you have the liberty, brother, to not celebrate Christmas. And I have the liberty to do it. But some people get all twisted and bent out of shape over it. There's questions that arise when we look at traditions in our culture. What about December 25th? Is it the date Jesus was born? Why did they choose that date? Where did it come from? What about the Christmas tree? Is that really part of Christian tradition or did it come from pagan roots? And if so, can I have one in my house? Where did Santa Claus come from? The North Pole? Does he really live in a toy factory? Is there any historical precedent? Is just this pagan corruption meant to destroy Christianity? And what about giving gifts? Should I do that? The people that knock on my door with watchtowers and awake tell me I can't do it, that I'm following paganism. And especially if I try to use the Magi as my precedent for giving gifts, I'm following the astrology method, since the Magi, they say, were simply pagan astrologers. 
I want to kind of preface this by saying you, you can look at it two ways, folks. This time of the year, you can approach it in a reactive way or a proactive way. You can look at every and dodge every Christmas light and dodge every Christmas tree and every Christmas celebration and pronounce a curse on everybody you know, or you can see it as a great opportunity to get the gospel out. And I think it is a tremendous time of the year to share the Lord. And even if you are a Mr. Scrooge, i got to tell you, you're not going to get rid of Christmas in our culture. It's here to stay. And it has been corrupted. It's been taken and commercialized. It's been used in so many different ways. But you can use it proactively. Find out some of the things we're going to share tonight. And it's a tremendous opportunity, I think, to share the gospel at this time. As you know, Christmas is a busy time of the year. You've noticed that, haven't you? The traffic is horrendous. Ever try to go to the mall the last couple of weeks? On a weekend? It's an expensive time of the year. Budgeting gets a little tight about now. It's an exciting time of the year, but it's also a very lonely time of the year. The suicide rate goes up at this time of the year because times of loss during the Christmas holiday are brought up again in people's memories. People that don't have good families feel alienated at this time. But I think it is one of the greatest times in terms of an opportunity to share the gospel. First of all, let's look at a couple things. How did we get December 25th? Where did that come from? Uh, I've enjoyed finding that out. I've been doing that this week. Well, i got to say that in our day and age, it's not too tough to keep track of vital information, like dates. We have day timers. We have computer programs. You can even get a computer program that will beep and give you an alarm on somebody's special birthday or some special event. Now, in ancient times, they didn't have Macintoshes and IBMs and computer programs and day timers. And keeping track of dates was tough. So when was Jesus born? Best answer, no one knows. No one knows. That's the real true answer. Nobody knows when Jesus was born. It is unlikely that Jesus was born on December 25th for a variety of reasons. The most obvious reason being that it was tradition of shepherds who lived in Judea to bring their flocks in from the open fields after the end of October. The early mornings, the late evenings were very uh, precarious. You never knew what the weather was going to be like. And so you'd bring them in to protect them from the cold and you'd keep them inside the shelter rather than out in the open fields after the end of October. The scripture tells us these shepherds were out in the fields watching their flocks at night. And so some have guessed, well, it's probably sometime in the fall or sometime in the uh, spring, perhaps even in the summer, but probably not December 25th. All right, where did December 25th come from? It came from around 200 A.D. Hippolytus, who was a, lived in Rome, he was actually a Greek philosopher and part of the early church, said that Jesus was born on December 25th, and here was his reason. He believed that Jesus lived exactly 33 years to the day and month. Exactly. Now, there's no precedent for that. He just said he, was, he lived 33 years from conception to crucifixion. And he said that Jesus was conceived on the same day he was crucified. And he said that he was crucified on March 25th. 
So he took March 25th as the day of crucifixion, but also conception, counted nine months, and got to December 25th. That's probably where it originated from. Uh, The calculations are way off because he's just supposing these things that really have no documentation. He's just thinking that she was conceived on that date, same day that he was crucified and counted nine months. Now, there's other dates that were set. Clement of Alexandria, one of the early church fathers, said that Jesus was born on May 20th. Others said April 18th or 19th. Some even said March 28th. The Eastern Church celebrated the birth of Christ January 6th. In many places, they still do. Uh, We don't know when he was born, and it's okay. It doesn't really matter, because I found, as you have found, Christian, that Christmas is not a date. It is a lifestyle. It is a change of heart and mind. It's Christ fixed as the center of your life day in and day out. And I love the scripture that Paul says, One man will esteem one day of the week over all the other days. Another man will esteem all days alike. That's me. Let each one be persuaded in his own mind. Well, along with that then, what's the relation to the pagan holidays? Have you ever heard that? Well, Christmas, December 25th, was fixed because of the pagan holidays. Well, if you go back in history, back in Babylon, sort of the mother of all paganism in this world, a lot of stuff stemmed from Babylon, where they first in Mesopotamia worshipped a guy by the name of Nimrod, who they said was the sun god. And every year about this time, The time of the winter solstice, as days got shorter and shorter up to the 21st of December and then days got longer and longer, they celebrated the worship of the sun. They worshipped it under the birthday of Nimrod. Some worshipped Baal, the big god of fertility, as worshipping one uh, they called the sun god. It became known as Yule Day. Have you ever heard uh, or seen Yuletide greetings? The word Yule is a Chaldean word that means infant. And what they did is they took a log, Christmas Eve, the evening the Babylonians called the Mother Night, placed it on the fire, it burned, and the next morning they would put a tree inside to symbolize the Tammuz, the sun. The son of Nimrod, actually the incarnation of the sun was born on that day, and life or resurrection came. Nimrod was resurrected through Tammuz, the incarnation of his father. And they celebrated on that day. As you go along in history, we get to the Roman times, and there were two festivals that the Romans celebrated, very, very close, with the same kind of idea of the Babylonians. The first holiday was between the 17th and 24th of December, called Saturnalia. And it was the day where the sun is struggling. The days are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. It's the celebration of the struggle of the sun. The second holiday that took place on the 25th of December was called Brumalia. And it was celebrating the invincible sun. The sun has conquered. The days are getting longer. The sun will shine more brightly and longer as the days go on. So they celebrated the new sun. They celebrated it by feasting, giving of gifts. They celebrated it by riotous living, making merry uh, publicly and in their homes. 
By the time of 336 A.D., the church adopted December 25th as the birth of Jesus. Now, some of you are getting a little bit panicked. Just hold on. It's okay. We're going to find out why they did it, and I think it will set you free a little bit. But there was no mention of an official celebration in any annals of church history anywhere until the day 336 A.D., when it appeared as we will celebrate the birth of Christ. They started that in the western part of the church, in the western Roman Empire, and of course things trickle out, things by gossip get around. And other members of the church in the eastern sector, way over in Mesopotamia, heard that their western brethren were celebrating Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ, on the same time that the Romans were celebrating the worship of the sun, like the ancient Babylonians. So, of course, they criticized them. You've capitulated. You've sold out. You've backslidden. You're worshiping the sun. And God doesn't want you to do that. As time went on, the Puritans in England and in New England refused to celebrate Christmas. In fact, they made Christmas a mandatory workday, just so you wouldn't be able to celebrate it. And they fought trying to abolish Christmas altogether in this country as well as England. It didn't get very far because Christmas became too popular. And the real issue at hand that many people today overlook, as some of the ancient brethren overlooked, is why did the church finally end up on December 25th? Was it because they thought, well, we'll just fit in with the pagans like some of us have thought? We'll just do what they do and then there won't be any controversy? No. The answer might surprise you. The early church chose December 25th to show Jesus Christ's triumph over all the pagan traditions, customs, and celebrations. That's why they chose it. They said, we don't know when he was born. We're going to say this day as not an endorsement, but a rival celebration. That our God is more powerful than all of your pagan traditions, and Jesus Christ should be celebrated for coming into this world. It was to counter it. So Christmas was not a capitulation to paganism. It was a coronation over paganism as they celebrated the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. So, let's face it. How many people today, when they give a gift, buy a tree, or make any celebration this time of the year, think, I'm going to go worship a Babylonian god. And then I'm going to go home with my family and we're going to partake in Saturnalia. You say, no one I know. Right. Any more than they feel guilty about saying Sunday or Monday or Tuesday, which are all pagan names of pagan gods that people worship during the Roman times. I still say the days of the week, even though they come from pagan names. I'm not capitulating to any tradition. I don't celebrate that way. It was shown to triumph over those traditions. Today, let's admit it, the whole idea of Christmas and the real meaning of Christmas has been lost. Now, I think you'd get the average person on the street if you were to say, what does Christmas mean? What's the real meaning behind Christmas? You'd get a lot of people who would say in this country, okay, it's the birth of Jesus Christ. That's what we're celebrating. But it has become twisted. And the secular idea of even the birth of Jesus Christ is simply what the angel said to the shepherds that we just read. Peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. And they have sort of settled right there, haven't they? 
What are we celebrating? The secular world will say we are celebrating that we want peace on earth and goodwill toward men, to show goodwill to one another. What they don't understand, and here's your opportunity, is to share the scripture of Luke chapter 2. It's not man's goodwill toward man that the angel was speaking about, but God's goodwill toward men in sending a Savior to die for their sins. That's right. This is a time of goodwill toward men. Man needed a Savior. God took the initiative, sent His Son to be born in human flesh to come to this earth to buy salvation, to redeem us to God. In fact, in the original Greek language, it could be better translated, peace on earth to men in whom God is well pleased. Is God pleased with your life? Are you living a life for Him? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Peace to men in whom God is well pleased. You know, people this time of the year talk about the Prince of Peace. You might even see it on certain windows. What people, though, in our society want is the peace without the Prince. But they're open this time of the year. You know, I was watching TV the other night, channel surfing, and I got onto a Christmas special, and they were singing Christmas songs in Washington, D.C., Some of the famous stars of our country around the world were there singing for national television. The President of the United States was there. Many famous people were there. And I listened to the songs. They all spoke about Jesus Christ as the Lord, the coming King, the one who was born for the salvation of sins. They all centered on Christ. And I thought, what an amazing time of the year. That the world gives you the freedom to speak about Jesus. Let's go for broke. Let's zero in on it. Let's explain a little further. Let's tell them what these words mean. Let's have them, you know, talk about the meaning of it. The meaning of the Savior born. Another question we would ask is, what about this Christmas tree? And I want you to turn with me to a portion of Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 10. Some of you who are anti-evergreen tree in your house. Maybe for a number of reasons, not the least being this chapter of the Bible. It's usually the reference that people will have you turn to when they want to say that you're a very ungodly slob to have one in your house. Hear the word of the Lord, which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven. For the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. And people have looked at that and said, Ah, that's the Christmas tree. They're following that ancient pagan Babylonian tradition on Mother Night with the Yule Log. That's what this reference is about. That's the way of the Gentiles. Well, that's not the reference here. Every scholar and every text that I looked up in a commentary said that what Jeremiah is referring to is the making of an actual idol with hands and feet and head. They took the wood. They cut off the branches. They put silver. They put metal on it. And they made it into an idol to worship an image. In fact, look at verse 5. They are upright like a palm tree. 
They cannot speak. They must be carried because they themselves cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. When they finished making the idol, it was of no value. It had feet, but it couldn't walk. It had hands, but it couldn't move. It had eyes, but it couldn't see. The men who made the god had to carry the idol with them. And so the idea is making a statue to worship it, a permanent wooden idol. Now you should know that the modern Christmas tree that sold out on the lots originated in West Germany. It originated in West Germany. In fact, Martin Luther was one of the first guys who had one. It was first called the Paradise Tree. Let me tell you its origin. It's fascinating. In medieval times, a play was performed about Adam and Eve for some of the Western Europeans. And in the play of Adam and Eve was an evergreen tree on the stage with apples hanging on it, symbolizing the tree of life from the Garden of Eden. The play became very popularized, and many of the Germans decided, I'd like one of those in my house. I like the idea, the concept of the paradise tree, the tree of life. And so they would cut an evergreen tree, bring it in their house, they would put apples on it and put little decorations. Eventually they hung wafers to symbolize the host from communion, which spoke of eternity and eternal life and redemption in Christ. Now later on, the tradition sort of went other directions. From hanging hosts or communion wafers, they put cookies as well. They hung ornaments, and they put lights on the tree. Their rationale is that light symbolized Jesus as the light of the world. And so the lights were to celebrate that Jesus lights up our home. The world would be in darkness without him. In the same room, it was German tradition to have a triangular box with little shelves. And they would put little figurines that spoke of this time of the year, Christmas, the birth of Christ, sometimes the nativity set. Eventually, by the 16th century, both this evergreen tree and this triangular thing merged into one, hence the putting up of Christmas ornaments on a tree and candles or lights on a tree. It became very popular among the Lutherans in Germany. As I mentioned, Martin Luther had such a tree in his own house as a home decoration. And what he would do, according to the Lutheran tradition that I have read, is that he'd take the tree, he'd put lots of candles on it, then he'd take his kids around the tree. And he'd say, kids, this tree is to remind you that if Jesus Christ did not come as the light of the world to give us salvation, the world would be in eternal darkness forever. That's what this tree is to symbolize from you from now on. The leader of the Great Reformation. So you can look at it a couple different ways. You can buy one and feel really guilty that you have one. It's pagan, I shouldn't have it. Jeremiah 10. It's not what it's talking about. You can be like the Puritan who quoted this by saying, we do not believe in the present ecclesiastical arrangement called Christmas. First of all, because we do not believe in the Mass at all, but abhor it. Second of all, because we find no scriptural warrant for observing any day as the birthday of the Savior. Consequently, its observance is a superstition. Or, you can see it as an opportunity. And next time, your neighbor gets a Christmas tree. You can say, hey, beautiful tree. Do you know the origin of that tree? Well, I think I do. But then you can explain it to them, and what an opportunity to share the gospel as you talk about its origin from Germany. Now, of course, every Christmas time, we come to this strange character of Christmas. You know his name. 
Santa Claus. Surely fictional, right? Well, yeah, he is the way it's seen today. But he does have an historical precedent. And I thought you ought to know about it. Now, Santa Claus has been mythologized and he has been made to be this benevolent fat guy with a beard who not only makes movies like The Miracle on 34th Street, but he travels the world every Christmas Eve and instantaneously gives gifts to all children living at the North Pole having elves. That's a myth. Oh, I can see the disappointment in some of your eyes. You, you really have believed it all this time. But Santa Claus is an Americanized form of the Dutch Saint Nicholas, as he has been called. And he was a real person. In fact, as I studied about him today, I was amazed to find out who he really was. Saint Nicholas. Uh, Santa Claus is the uh, corruption of Sinterklaas, or Sint Nicholas, as the Dutch reformers, the Dutch called him as they settled this country and passed it down. He lived in the 4th century. He was a Christian pastor. He was a bishop of the church at Myra in Lycia. And what really fascinated me is that Nicholas attended the Council of Nicaea. You've heard of the Nicene Creed? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The Nicene Creed forms the platform of what all true Christians have believed, the truths of the faith. He attended the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. and supported the doctrine of the Trinity. When there was a controversy, Arius, who's the precursor of the Jehovah Witnesses who denied the deity of Christ, was withstood by a group of people. One of them was Nicholas who believed in the Trinity and fought for it. He had a reputation. We don't know how true this is, but there's a few stories about him. He had a reputation for being compassionate and very benevolent. That he would give gifts. In fact, there's a story where Nicholas saved three young girls from prostitution who were being trying to be picked up on on the street. He would encourage them. He threw, it is said, three bags of gold on three different occasions through the window of their home to give them enough money to give them a dowry so they could have an honorable marriage. That's where the giving of gifts comes from. It's from the 4th century bishop of Mirand called Nicholas. Now what about that red suit? Well, it's supposed that the red suit trimmed with white fur originated in the bishop's mitre and cape that at that time in church history were worn by such people. Now I'm not trying to justify our cultural Santa Claus. And I'm not trying to glorify Santa Claus because today he's pictured as almost deity by some people. That he has the magic of giving you what you want and can be all places at one time on Christmas Eve. But at the same time, don't get Santa Claustrophobia. <laughs> Share with your kids. Listen, kids look at Santa Claus and they just go goo-goo over him. You know, you could use that. You can say, hey, do you know about this guy? Do you know who he was? Do you know what he stood for? He was a Christian. He loved God. He talked about the Trinity. Tell him he's not the mythological figure that you see, but there really was a person, and he loved God. What a good example that could be. That's a historical background of Santa Claus. And then we come to gift-giving, finally. And this is what I've heard from many people. Shouldn't give gifts at Christmas. 
Of course, I won't give any one to someone like that. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Because the Roman revelry and the Babylonian customs of those days, especially since we know that gift-giving goes back to the time of the Romans when they celebrated Bacchanalia and Saturnalia and the other feasts, And if you say, yeah, but wait a minute, you know, the first Christmas, look at it. The Magi who came from Mesopotamia, they followed the star. They brought gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I'm taking my cues from them. If you were to say that to those who knock on your door with the Watchtower and the Wake magazines, the Jehovah Witnesses will tell you, no. Remember, the Magi were astrologers. They plotted the stars. That's all they were, pagan stargazers. And you should not follow a pagan stargazer, especially since we get the term magic from the term magi. But actually, I found that the best translation of magi is wise men. They were skilled in the arts and the sciences, and even if they were pagan at the time of Christ, guess what? God led them to Bethlehem. You can't get away from that fact. They followed the star that God put there. They followed it to Jerusalem. The God God of Israel led them to Bethlehem. And God, in a dream, spoke to these pagan astrologers to watch out for Herod. But, the person will say, those were gifts given to Jesus, not to one another. But you miss the point that way. Our risen, reigning Christ doesn't need gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It was a token of their kingdom saying, this is a king. We honor, we respect him. We followed the star over here. The scripture also tells us that when we give to one another, Jesus said, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. And I think you can open a door to share the gospel when you give a gift. We've done that with shoe boxes over in Rwanda. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be going this Saturday. But I think, you know, That picture of you, those toys, those little gifts, and shared in the name of Jesus, that address, some of them might write back. That country could, through a small door, have a lot of little kids who grew up because a whole bunch of people who believed in Jesus loved him enough to get on airplanes and bring thousands of boxes over their way and tell them about Jesus and love them. Why? Well, they might ask those questions, come to know Christ, and a whole country could be rebuilt from the ground up with Christian principles, because those will be the next leaders of the country. Their parents have been killed. Oh, there's a bunch of orphans running around who could become leaders. God could do a great work there. So I want to encourage you in terms of tradition. It can become bad, it can become good. You can be reactive, you can be proactive. You can say naughty, naughty, shame, shame, or you can share with the world some of the roots historically. Share the gospel with them. They're open this time of the year. They're ready to listen. They sing His praises, even though they don't think about it much. Let me give you a few ideas of what you can do. Let's close with this. The shoebox project was a great tradition. I think we ought to keep that up every year, as long as there's going to be war and famine and hostility in this world, and I think there will be till Christ comes. There will always be opportunities to do this. Every year, as a church, we can rally together and find some hurting group Though there's people all around us that are hurting. And share Jesus with them that way. In our family, my wife has invented a neat tradition 
At least I think she did. She gets the credit for it from me. She takes on Christmas Eve three old bags, tattered, beat up, dirty paper bags, puts each of our names on it, all three of us, gives it to us, and we're responsible for writing down something that we want God to change about us, where our old nature has taken root and control. Something maybe we're even ashamed of, that we want to confess as sin, and we'll write it down. Then we'll all pray, oh God, change this in my life. Help me to put on Christ, put on the new man, put off the old man. Change this in my life, and we pray about it together. Then we put those old bags somewhere, fireplace. Of course, the next day, my son wakes up, and I wake up because she wakes up earlier than all of us finding brand new bags, the shiny kind, the gift bags, with little treats and goodies in them, signifying that God takes the old and changes you and makes you something brand new, and He's always changing you from glory to glory. And we try to explain that to our son throughout the years. Another thing you might want to do is drive to some of the rough areas of town. As you do that, pray for every person you see. Walk in those streets. Just start driving neighborhoods and start praying for everybody you see in those neighborhoods. You might take it a step further and do what many have done over the years and work in some of the shelters and some of the areas because I'll tell you what will happen. You'll do it one day and you'll think, you know, why should I just do this at Christmas or Thanksgiving? I ought to come down here more often. You might be one of those people who help run some of those shelters and houses to get the gospel out to those people. Another thing, it might be a good tradition, is to write a letter of reconciliation. Someone that you haven't been getting along with, you have odds with, you've had arguments with, there's that rift, you know about it, she or he knows about it, write a letter of reconciliation. I know we've had differences, we've argued. I want to love you in Christ. It's a good thing to do. Another thing to do, it's good because people let you do it. You can knock on any door and carol. Did you know that? If you knocked any other night of the week and say, can I tell you about Jesus? I have a song for you. They say, get out of here. You get a few people together and you say, let's go Christmas caroling. Do some harmonies. Knock on the door. And before you sing, you just say, hey, we're from the area. We like to sing a few songs. Can we do that? Oh, well, that'd be wonderful. Before I do, let me explain why we're doing this. And just make it simple, short. We're singing about the birth of Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is all about. He's our Savior. He died for the sins of the world. And we've received Him as our personal Lord and Savior. And in His name, we want to sing you these carols. Boom. Let it roll. (laughs) Then you, you might even want to take your group and say, Hey, we'll be back in the summer. Christmas in July. We'll go caroling at your door next year. All sorts of ways that the Spirit can guide you. Can Christmas lead you to Christ? Depends on how you look at it. They celebrate it. They've got the lights. They've got the trees. They've got the goodies. Explain to them the way more accurately. Let's be proactive. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time together. We thank You how Jesus Christ fills our life as the light of the world. That as we look through church history, we find that Many different ones came up with ideas and dates and traditions. Some of them for the right reasons. Some of them were passed down 
as a reminder or as an object lesson to children to get the message brought across more effectively. Oh, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be positioned so that we would look for those opportunities this time of the year as people are open at perhaps a greater time than ever before. Fill us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit, without whom we could do none of this. All of the methods of men, all of the knowledge of facts are vain and void without that touch and giftedness of your Spirit within us. How we thank you for this time of the year. How we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. I pray that the greatest gift of all, your Son, would be the gift that many people receive during this season. We pray, Lord, for our Christmas Eve service at Tingley Coliseum. We pray, Lord, that many people across this city who just want to celebrate Christmas, it's a good thing, a good feeling, would just come. Many who don't know you. That these people who are here, all of us tonight in this room, auditorium, and listening by radio, would invite an unbelieving friend through the music, through the message, through that work of your Spirit. People would be touched to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.